Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. We have two brilliant guests for you today. Emma Webb, a commentator, and Ella Whelan, a journalist, commentator, and author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom, and an End to Feminism. There we go. I got that all right. Uh, not the first time, I'll be honest. Welcome both. Hi. It's it good to have you back. And Emma, we've been meaning to have you on the show for a long time. Uh, not necessarily the best circumstances to, to have you on the show. There's been some tragic events, and uh, that was one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show, the abduction and murder of a woman here in London, our international audience may not be familiar with it. And the conversation that has ensued from that, vigils, protests, policing, we'll get into all of that. Uh, but we wanted to talk about the broader issue of women's safety first and foremost. Uh, and it's this thing that, you know, as two guys in particular, when we talk to women in our lives who may be not feminists or not, you know, almost every woman has some experience of being harassed, being followed, being mistreated in some way. What is what is the situation in terms of women's safety in 2021, Emma? Uh, well, I so I personally, uh, as you say, you know, most women have at some point walked home with their keys between their fingers at night or um, had someone harass them in the streets. But usually the person who, in my experience, is, you know, nutcase, could be a woman, could be a man. Um, I think that the women's, obviously women's safety is something important and we should talk about it. But I think the way that we have been talking about it since the murder of Sarah Everard is just completely off the wall and unrelated and to do with many other things other than the actual murder itself. Um, so, yeah, I think it's not an issue necessarily to do with um, sort of men particularly. It's not, uh, a, as people have been calling it, an epidemic of misogyny. It's not systemic misogyny. Um, I think that you know, women's safety is something definitely worth discussing, but the hysterical overreaction to um, the Sarah Everard case, that case is quite unusual um, in the scheme of the sorts of, uh, like, homicides against women. People have been calling them femicides. Um, usually tend to happen from someone that the woman knows, and uh, women are less likely to be um, murdered in public than in the public space than men. So I think those are two very separate issues and they're all of these different things to do with everything from catcalling to murder and kidnap have just been clumped together recently. So I think there's, a, there's an awful lot to unpick. Ella, what's your take on it? I mean, it, it is a complicated picture and I think you have to be honest and brave enough to say that it's a complicated picture and there are many people today who want, just want to package it up very neatly, whether that be saying there's no problem, this is a hysteria or saying... Like Emma says, uh, you know, femicide is on the rage and we all should, you know, we should entertain ideas like curfews. I mean, the fact is, girls are told from a young age by their parents, in, in particular, in a different way that boys are told, to be careful on the way home. You know, it, it, my parents told me to think about what I was wearing, not from, not because they had some kind of misogynistic view of controlling women, but, you know, out of a sense of, safety and care and you you know most women do and all the women I know anyway have experiences of not necessarily being assaulted but having your heart rate quicken of think you know thinking twice about taking the quicker route home which is darker or the longer route home which is along main roads all that is a truth and it happens but at the same time you have to uh, acknowledge as Emma has said that statistically the likelihood of any of us ending up like Sarah Everard 
you know, which is our worst nightmare to end up like that, um, is incredibly low. So of 1,500 women that were murdered in the last uh, 10 years, between 2009 and 2018, by men, it was about 8% of them were, uh, for, were murdered by strangers through kidnapping or, you know, someone on the street attacking them. So that's a really small percentage. So the, so the likelihood of one of us going out on the street and being attacked like Sarah is statistically incredibly low. But that doesn't quite answer the question of why women are feeling afraid. And for me, the concept of safety isn't just about what is the physical threat that, you, that, that might happen to you, but it's also about how do you feel yourself? How confident are you? And the tragedy, the continuing tragedy of what happened to Sarah is that what, or what I think a lot of contemporary feminists are now kind of given into is the idea that women should feel deeply terrified, that actually that their fears, their greatest nightmares of ending up, up like Sarah Everard are reality. And what that really is doing is, you know, giving into the uh, MO of men that want to hurt women is, that allow, is kind of asking women to live in fear, which is what these men want. They want women to be afraid. That's why they commit these crimes. It's not just, it's not just coincidence. They don't just do it for the hell of it. They do, you know, most of them do it to make women feel afraid. And so, you know, safety... It's, you know, statistically, you are going to be very safe on the street. And as much as most women are afraid, also most women fall home out of clubs and walk home on their own. And, you know, I can imagine numerous situations that I put myself in as a teenager that would make me wince now. But I did it without a thought when I was younger, because that's, you know, you, you live freely when you're young. But the question is, you know, what's, what is better to compound women's fears that are in some cases irrational or to say, actually, we want to reclaim the streets we want to you know reclaim the night and be as comfortable on a on a public sphere as a man is from 3 p.m to 3 a.m i take i think the latter is far more progressive than the former and why do you think this the murder of this of sarah everard sparked this particular movement why do you think was it was it lockdown was it because it was a police officer who's been who's been charged with this crime although he hasn't been convicted as of yet well, I was thinking about it in relation to the murder of George Floyd, you know, in, in a similar situation in which there is a long-standing problem with police brutality and racism in America, and George Floyd is certainly not the first black man to die at the hands of a police officer. Why did it particularly take off in relation to him, and why was there such mass movements with Black Lives Matter? Why has Sarah Everard um, hit a chord? And I think because we, you know, it's, it's a tricky point to make, but I think politically we've moved further into a realm of extremes, which is not to get kind of wishy-washy liberal about it, but to say that, you know, you immediately, that people have a kind of knee-jerk reaction that they immediately jump to the kind of worst-case scenario. So we're not even talking about sexism. We're talking about misogyny at the moment, that there's, an, you know, that we have people on the radio saying the police are institutionally misogynistic. And you think, okay, I'm not a fan of the police but the police institutionally hate women. I mean, misogyny is about <laughs> a deep-seated, visceral and violent hatred of women. No, there's no evidence of that. In the set, it's, it's very similar with the kind of the idea of white privilege that came out of this Black Lives Matters movement in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The idea that all white people you know, have a kind of innate violence within them that just exists as an abstract thing. We've now got this sort of conversation that all men, no matter what their sensibilities or their behaviour or their track record or their beliefs, have an innate violence within them that exists abstract to their individual individuality that poses a threat to women. And, you know, at the same time, I'm also not surprised that it's kicked off because in the past we've had, of course, the Me Too movement, 
We've also had Everyday Sexism, which was Laura Bates' pet project and has kept her in columns and books for years, which is the, you know, the idea that we women live under everyday sexism and live under fear. The kind of holler back movement, which was about reclaiming the streets. There's been so many different kind of hashtags and, you know, and campaigns um, around women's safety that I, it, again, this is kind of a sore point, but it can feel like there are lots of people who've been campaigning around this issue for a long time and now they kind of have their they have their evidence of you know one murder but it's a terrible murder they have their evidence to say look look at what happened to Sarah Everard we told you that there is an epidemic of femicide and of course most sensible people can see that that's not the case see it's 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 difficult for us because we hear what you guys are saying you know obviously take it on board but as I said, if you speak to, if we speak to women in our lives, that's definitely a part of their lives that they have to deal with, right? And if you, I think you speak to any woman, that is a concern. Then again, the statistics are men are much more likely to be assaulted in public in the street than women. So, like, how do we even have this conversation? Yeah, I think cynically, I'm very cynical about this. I agree totally with everything that you've just said. I think that the way that um, it, 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 we obviously we can talk about how the protests and things have been have been hijacked, but obviously in the same way that happened with George Floyd, where after that there were certain people who wanted us to see systemic racism everywhere. Now there are some people who want us to see systemic misogyny everywhere. And so you have people like Baroness Jenny Jones immediately coming out and saying the solution to this problem is that we just should lock all men inside after 6pm, put a curfew on them, because that essentially implies that there is, like you say, something you know, inherent to men, inherently violent, which I think doesn't chime at all with women's experience. So when it comes to having a having conversations between men and women and just in the public space about this, I feel like this has really has no bearing on people's real uh, experience, women's experiences of these things. And also men as, you know, husbands, fathers, brothers. Um, I think that the way that, as you mentioned, um, about everyday sexism, Boris Johnson coming out and saying that, you know, everyday sexism is something that's, you know, we have to figure out the root of it. And that's why we need to deal with misogyny in society. And Sorry, just a thought about Boris Johnson <laughs> talking about everyday sexism. I just... we've, managed to, we've managed to make the debate about something completely unrelated to the starting point. And that's the same as what happened right. with George Floyd. And I think, cynically, the reason why this is the case is because we have these ideas in the zeitgeist that are sort of um, whirring around. And with any, uh, and of, as I mentioned, because they believe in system, systemic racism or s systemic sexism, they will see that everywhere. And it creates this kind of panic. And when you have a, a, a situation where policymakers are responding in a knee-jerk way to that kind of panic, not only can you not have a proper discussion about it, but you also end up with ridiculous policies that are built on the hysteria that has been, which it has no no real um, sensible, reasonable relation to the actual facts. Well, you talk about the proper conversation. This is what I'm trying to work out because this is what the purpose of, of us four being together. What is the reasonable conversation? Do we all just go, well, look, the reality of life is people get murdered, people get assaulted. You know, we can try and, you know, tinker with the criminal justice system, but that's about all we can do. And some people are always gonna, you know, be the victims of that and that's terrible. But is is that the reason, you know, because it feels like we're slightly, you know, that's not, I don't know, maybe that's true, but it's like we're not doing enough. That that would be the argument some people might make. Well, I mean, you know, the the it's true to say that more men are 
are subject to violence, um, particularly in the public square, um, than women. But of course, context is key. So, you know, it's men committing violence against other men. And, yeah. you know, the abstract from the whole thing, uh, separate from it, is that women don't go around battering people. You know, it generally, or well, some do, but generally, women don't go around committing crimes of violence um, against men or against other women in the same in the same yeah. kind of statistics as men do. So context is key. I mean, you know, two guys brawling outside a pub is very different from the case of Sarah Everard. You know, that that context is key in this, and I think we discussions tend to lose that. I want to live in a world in which we change the rate of rape. We change the rate of murder against women. I mean, in particular, this is part of the frustrating thing is that if you really want to have a serious conversation about the instances in which women are in danger of murder, I mean, domestic abuse is the main one. And you can pass all the laws you like. We know that the problem with domestic abuse is that police officers don't take certain cases as seriously when women initially report that they are having problems with an ex-partner. So, you know, implementing a new law and put, making misogyny a hate crime doesn't change that fact. And there's this kind of weird uh, sort of double thinking going on where on the one hand you have contemporary feminists saying the police are disgusting they're institutionally sexist they're misogynist they're awful but by the way we want to have loads of them in the bar with us we want to have them on the street watching us when we're walking about in case someone commits a hate crime and we'd really like to have one on every street corner and you think well which one is it are these guys evil or are they your saviors but at the same time you know this is it's an uncomfortable conversation to have because the reality is that women experience life different to men and you know in many cases and there are lots of people who disagree with me on that and there's some people who i think have a have a real visceral reaction to men being portrayed as or as you know heinous and awful which is the right reaction to have because they're not and there are some people that want to say for god's sake this isn't a problem let's stop the hysteria but look sexism didn't just come about like drop from the sky. Historically, it was about women being judged to be lesser than men, you know, more in need of protection, more fragile, um, less capable of dealing with hardship. That, is, that was the root of sexism. That's why women weren't allowed to work. That's why women weren't allowed to vote. Um, the, the problem is that those tendencies haven't really been challenged in the modern era, despite laws being um, implemented. In fact, they've actually been turned on their head. And now more often than not, it's contemporary feminists arguing that either women need chaperones, which they, you know, they have done in the wake of Me Too. I remember David Schwimmer getting praised for saying that he'd invite a chaperone when a female interviewer would, um, would interview him. I mean, that's like straight out of the Victorian playbook or that, uh, that we need more police intervention. I mean, to take a really specific thing, you know, what I've talked about this on a trigonometry beforehand in the past, you know, some of us who are interested in women's freedom are currently trying to get abortion decriminalized, which is making a position, which is stating a position that says the state should have no say in women's private lives. And then these, you know, other feminists come along and say, Actually, we want misogyny criminalized. We want the state invited into our lives. We want to have police involved in our everyday decisions. We want to have authorities involved in the way in which we make choices about, um, about how we live. And you just think you're ruining, you're ruining all the progress that was ever made in the past about women becoming independent. And I think that you know, the, the, there is the problem that women have a different role in society to men, that we, there, there are still vestiges of sexism in some areas, whether it be in relation to child rearing or indeed in relation to bodily autonomy. And you're compounding that sexism by suggesting that we are victims 
uh, for men, well, you know, victims at the hands of men. That, that is what they said in 1910. That is what they said in the 1800s to stop us from entering public life. And it's just being reconstituted and you know, slap a bit of plink glitter on it and put a press statement out from the Fawcett Society. And I meant to eat it up. And it's just, it's sickening, actually. But don't you think as well, and, and maybe it's me being slightly conspiratorial about this, but don't you think that we've just become, uh, there's a creeping desire for authoritarianism in a lot of people, oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we've seen it in lockdowns. And you see it here, they just go, we should have a policeman in every bar, in every nightclub. And I'm like, you know, my mother grew up in Venezuela. That's what they have there. That's not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, in particular, sorry, in particular, the undercover cops thing. I mean, on Andrew Marr, um, the weekend after the, the um, news of Sarah Everard's death came about, Jess Phillips, Labour MP, was on, and she was talking about the fact that, you know, she said something like there are so I go out and I see so many wardens giving parking tickets you know to cars and I think why can't there be the same level of attention given to women so you think one parking ticket <laughs> attendants tend to be so universally accepted as one of life's greatest menaces is yeah. really not a good example yeah. but also you know the 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 idea that I would want more men watching me because most police officers are men or that we've just had the scandal with the spy cops of police officers being revealed to have not only had sex with women in the green in the environmentalist movement but families with them undercover cops it's been a huge scandal and so now you want to put stick these undercover bastards in the club I mean will a woman ever be allowed to sneak off to the smoking area to kiss someone that she hasn't met before without someone looking around the corner. I mean, it's disgusting. I've just got this image of coming out of a bar, like a bar or someone and policeman going, excuse me, have you left your girlfriend outside? There's a ticket on her or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, treat treat women like cars. Great idea. Uh, <laughs> it was not problematic enough. Let's, let's take it up a notch, which is this whole conversation about not all men, which is essentially, I think people, some people quite reasonably going, well, Look, educating me about not raping people isn't going to reduce the number of rapes in the country because I'm not a rapist, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So how do we have that conversation without looking like a dick, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> I don't think it's easy to have that conversation at all without getting in trouble, particularly as a man. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it's it's because obviously the people who are going to commit the crimes like the the guy who potentially we don't know because it has he hasn't been convicted of anything yet. The guy who cop met who may have murdered Sarah Everard, um, you know, people like that are going to commit crimes no matter what you do. You can pass legislation and you can try to deal with people who are catcalling and wolf whistling, and you can clamp down on people's freedom of speech and destroy the relationships between the sexes in the process of trying to do that and to as we've seen in so many other areas of hate crime, raise the temperature so that everybody feels increasingly restricted, which is quite ironic because they're talking about like the over-policing of the protests, but at the same time, they also want to over-legislate in areas like that. I think that that is a bit of a weird um, double standard that they've got going on there. But I do think that, you know, it's, it's pretty much nigh on impossible for a straight man to talk about this subject because you've already been demonized as we saw with the, you know, you need to be locked inside after six o'clock. It's, there's not really anything that you can say because it will be viewed in that particular framework that's already being promoted. Um, so yeah, I think one of the reasons why it's important for us to see things in a, in a slightly more complicated way, and there is no nuance in the debate, we need to move away from that, the understanding of these things as being systemic 
so that you guys can have a voice and we can have a reasonable discussion and we can talk about, you know, the wives and brothers and, um, you know, who who care very much about women and who are, are not shouldn't be talked about as if they are somehow complicit in the crimes of a very, very small minority of men who would commit those crimes regardless of what you do about misogyny in society. It's also a complete misunderstanding of what is happening when someone like the alleged murder of Sarah Everard commits those crimes or when someone rapes a woman. There's Particularly in relation to rape, there's been this sort of real blurring of the, spe the specificity of his in terms of consent classes and things like that. People now see rape as just this thing that someone happens to kind of fall into because they're not educated about. I mean, it's that's, it's perverse. It's not You don't have to kind of get into the graphic ins and outs of what happens in rape, but if, if the person who's doing it knows what they're doing is wrong, either that or the, the, everyone is completely inebriated and it's still wrong. So it's, you know, it's it's quite clear to know when when you are committing immoral acts and the idea of putting, as Emma says, you know, everyone through a consent class, as if it's if, as if it's like kind of health and safety training, and you just need to know not to step over the red line. I mean, it's just a it's it's a real dumbing down of actually human relationships and what is involved in that. But also, you know, to the kind of not all men thing. I mean, look, if I'm walking home you know, from Whitechapel late at night and I hear a footstep behind me that's too close, I'm not going to say to myself, he's probably just an accountant and he's got two kids <laughs> and everything. I'm probably going to think, oh, who's that? But then, you know, you that that's the instinctual reaction. And it's taking personal responsibility, yeah, but, which is a good thing. Yeah, but, it, and, and you know, that's, that's the instinctual reaction and we can talk about, the, we have talked about the rights and wrongs of women feeling afraid, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes... But, but politically, that's different. So when you're on your own and an individual, we feel all kinds of things because we're subjective, we're emotional beings. Some people like me are able to, you know, wear steel toe caps and kick people that get in our way. <laughs> Some people are not, and I would what never demonise or put shame on a woman who was afraid or timid or anything like that. But politically, when you are talking about a collective response to something that's outside of our subjective opinion, you have to take a firmer stance. And so you, you kind of get called... It's like you're an asshole now if you say we should start standing up for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this is what, you know, I wrote about this recently. In the 70s, when Peter Sutcliffe was, you know, routinely murdering and raping women, the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, and I mean, talk about terror when there was, the, you know, particularly in Leeds and, you know, the towns and areas around that. Women were absolutely terrified, rightly so. The police were useless. The police were not only saying that all women should stay inside, they were saying that the women who had been murdered, who were prostitutes, were asking for it because they were prostitutes, some of them, not all of them. And the feminists at that time came out and said, we're going to reclaim the night and, we're, and you're going to get out of our way or we're going to trample on you. And it was a real assertion of... I have lots of problems with, with feminism throughout the ages, but in particular, that assertion of women's freedom was one of the most inspiring things because it was about saying, whatever we are individually, collectively we are strong. And that's where men come in because if I am in trouble on the tube or somewhere where, where I can't, you know, physically as a woman, I can't battle this, this threat to me, I want to know that other members of society are willing to step in for me, you know, big woman, big man, doesn't matter. But you, what in driving these wedges between the sexes, what we're actually breaking is social solidarity, which is, you know, in a different conversation, we could talk about the dystopian fact that any time a crime happens, now everyone takes out their bloody phone and films rather than getting stuck in. And it's that similar drive to be isolated from and atomized from each other that this kind of discussion about men 
means. I want men to feel empowered to, you know, feel free to interact with me, to come on to me, to flirt with me, and also to step in and save me sometimes, to be free individuals who look out for each other. And if you're telling, demonizing men and saying, you know, re, Tim Stanley said this on the Politics Live the other day on the BBC, you know, actually he said, I think men have an innate kind of violence inside us. I mean, what does that mean women have an innate? Do I have an innate weakness inside yeah, exactly. us? Yeah, exactly. It's like you were saying earlier. It's basically creating this culture of, like, fragility that women, you know, we're not big girls and we can't look after ourselves, which is just not healthy. It's the absolute opposite to empowerment. It's made, it's telling women that they are the victim. And if you believe in systemic sexism, then you believe that so long as men exist, women will be the victim. And that the only way to, to, to change that is to change the law, is to have the state intervene to try and liberate you from this like inherent masculine violence. And it just, it's a kind of, um, like you were saying about George, George Floyd earlier, it's a kind of mythology that we have, that we've created a kind of postmodernist mythology that is seeping into every area of life. And, you know, we saw this with the um, protest movements in response to Sarah Everard, that they latch themselves on, whether consciously or unconsciously, onto this cause. And like with the misogyny bill that, um, misogyny amendment that has been um, in, discussed in parliament recently, that bill doesn't actually mention women. Mm. It or misogyny. It, it, well, it doesn't mention women or misogyny. It's being referred to as a misogyny amendment. And the government said that they're going to get the police to start recording misogyny as a, as a hate crime. Um, but the, the bill itself doesn't actually mention women. It mentions sex and gender. And it's the same as with the maternity bill recently, it didn't mention motherhood. So at the same time as we're having these conversations about misogyny, we're disempowering women and erasing them. And so you have people who are protesting ostensibly for women's rights in response to the Sarah Everard case, whilst at exactly the same time diminishing women's sex-based rights. Uh, it's just completely... the mess. Yeah. Do you watch problematic content online? Of course they do. They watch trigonometry. Many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data on to other big tech companies or other advertising companies. I know. That is why I use ExpressVPN to hide my browsing activities. I bet you do. ExpressVPN is a simple app which you can have on both your computer and your smartphone, which hides your traffic into one channel and directs it through a VPN server, which means your ISP can't see anything that you're doing. Look, the question I want to ask no. is, will it slow down the videos that I watch? Definitely not. That is one of the reasons it's been rated as the number one VPN app by CNET and Wired. I don't read those publications because I'm not a nerd. Stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and big tech companies, which are just going to use it and sell it on. Visit expressvpn.com slash trigger. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash trigger. I love it when you spell things out. But it gets even better than that. ExpressVPN are offering Trigonometry fans three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash trigger to learn more. But don't you think part of the problem is, is that we've stopped having good faith conversations? And, totally. And the... And, you can really see that by the solutions that come out of it. And every solution to this particular issue has been terrible. And that's just a reflection of the conversation we're having. Well, I mean, the Jenny Jones suggestion of a curfew, she initially made flippantly as a, as a kind of a joke. Yeah. And then within... Mark Drakeford was like... Yeah, within, <laughs> within hours, yeah. 
Mark Drakeford decides this is his moment to kind of virtue signal, <laughs> and, and then it hits the papers, <laughs> and then it's and then it becomes, and then she kind of doubles down and writes this article saying the response to it tells you what you need to know about sexism in the world, and you know how disgusting that people laugh at this idea, and suddenly it becomes reality, and suddenly it's it, you kind of are not laughing about it. You're, I mean, despite the ridiculousness of having a curfew in lockdown anyway, <laughs> it's like no one thought of that. But suddenly this thing that was a joke and was flippant is now potentially going to be made law. I mean, the thing about the misogyny amendment is that it's not that, you know, if there was this tussling with it, and Claire Fox makes a great point about this, that there was tussling with it about whether it was going to be part of the domestic abuse bill that's going through the House of Lords at the moment, whether or not it was going to be part of the police, the anti, you know, the police crackdown bill that, uh, you know, Pretty Patel's brainchild, um, or whether it was going to be its own law. And basically what's happened is there's been manoeuvrings in behind the scenes. Stella Creasy's had a word in some minister's ear. There's been some handshaking across the parties. And the minister now has, has assured the House of Lords that they don't need to talk about this amendment, misogyny amendment, because what's going to happen is they're going to roll out, the government is going to roll out the programme that happened in Nottinghamshire to make misogyny hate crime. So that's it. It's done. It's done. And it doesn't matter how much you or I say criticize it it doesn't matter what how we feel about it meaning even the undercover cops in um bars i mean it's probably been happening for years and the government can now just come out and say that that's what they've been doing for years but that was that was the government saying we're going to throw funding at at a particular position to put cops in bars you think when did you consult me about that when you know these they're, things they're are able to have... justify in the same way that they justify the covid measures because they say it's an emergency we have yeah. an epidemic of misogyny we must act now and if people start saying you know we have to do something someone will be like well here's something well, yeah okay we'll do that it's not a good idea and it's not going to fix the problem but sure we'll do that Sadiq can't put out a tweet saying you know this is amazing we're going to have safer streets for women and someone a, a, a young female black commentator um commented underneath and saying are you going to do something about misogynoir which is misogynoir is misogyny particularly against black women and then i saw someone else tweet saying well aren't we going to make hate uh, mis misandry a hate crime and hatred against men but this is the logical mm -hmm. this is what happens anyone who has a gripe I mean, when I was at school, loads of people used to make fun of the colour of my hair and called me knob and stuff, you know, <laughs> whatever the female equivalent of that. And, um, but, uh, you know, and I could have said that was damaging to me and I want it to be made a hate crime because the whole thing about hate crime... Is, <laughs> but the whole thing about hate crime is, and they, they admit this themselves, it's based on the perception of hate from the victim. Right. Yeah. So if I get boxed in the face by a man and I think that it's because he hates women rather than then he hates what I was wearing or whatever it is, then it gets registered as a hate crime. But that's, that's no accurate way of understanding whether or not he actually does hate women. I mean, it, just because someone shouts bitch, does that mean that they hate women? Or is there something more complicated going on here? So in terms of we're told that it's this like means of accruing accurate data uh, about misogyny, I mean, can't a police officer fill out a frigging form of that without passing a law? Well, you into yeah. thought, thought crime territory because you're trying totally, to work out yeah. what the person thought when they committed the crime from the perspective of the victim right and exactly. even if and even if it's not on the like lighter end of it where it's just speech being restricted yeah. if it is trying to ascertain the motive of a person who has committed a crime in itself like kidnapping somebody or domestic violence and then you ascribe mis the, a misogynist motive to that on the basis of someone's perception that can't you can't prove that objectively because, as you say, it's entirely based on perception, and it's and the de it's the definition of hostility, which is just ill feeling towards 
you know, to be hostile to something in the way that you would understand it in a normal conversation rather than any kind of like restricted legal sense. And so then you end up with the police essentially sort of prying into men's souls, mm. which ends up going down the Orwellian thought crime. Yeah, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, guys, I wanted to go back a little bit. We've got into the legal side, of which, which is very interesting. Um, but I just wanted to come back to one thing because I feel there's one thing that we're not actually talking about that maybe is true, which is, you know, Ella, you, you talked about the fact that, well, if you say that men are more aggressive than this and then that, that, make, that means that women are, are the opposite of that. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that, you know, guys are more aggressive, guys are stronger, guys are more likely to commit crime and therefore women are more vulnerable to that because they're on average smaller and, and weaker and, and, and all of that? Like, we're not accounting for that in this conversation, are we? Well, I'd always reject any kind of move towards seeing things in a kind of biologically determinist way because I think that while it is obviously the case, although <laughs> I say obviously, <laughs> I reject it, but it's, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously the case. I was just I was laughing because actually now the question of sex, you know, biological sex difference has been called into question by yeah. a completely different yes, culture phenomenon. Yes, we've covered um, that pretty that, well, as you know. But that you know, it's obviously the case that most women are physically less able yeah. to hold their own in a fight than men. Um, but that doesn't. I think that you know, natural instincts. I'm much more. Uh, I think I'm much more subject to context environment. So I'm. I'm. You know, much more of the kind of the soccer philosophical view that people make decisions because of the situation that they're in and because of the context that they live in and the circumstances they find themselves in. You know, it's that great Marx quote. Um, but, but you know, how do you do if you take ideas of, you know, what's macho or masculine or feminine? Um, there are, you know, this is the whole thing of kind of criminalizing, ma making problematic toxic masculinity, because there are some good things about being aggressive. Mm. In, you know, aggress aggression can sure. be a driver of progress. Hate can be a driver of progress as well, actually, politically particularly. Um, but then also there are things, you know, fem femininity gets just passed off as this kind of, you know, wishy-washy, fainting couch kind of um, scenario. But obviously, you know, there are different conversations about women being much more emotionally intelligent than men. And, and actually, as I say many times, I would far rather sit on the top deck of a bus with a bunch of teenage boys at the back than I would with a bunch of teenage girls at the back. Because teenage girls can be mean, really mean. And they can, you know, they're actually far smarter, far quicker. Um, than boys. And so I think we get into these, th we kind of get into the words about what people naturally are like, rather than actually celebrating. It's, it's, it's kind of tells you where we're at politically today, rather than celebrating the concept of agency, which is about saying it actually doesn't matter what I am innately, that I, because I can use my rational agency and my mind and my and my decision-making capabilities, I can override my nature. So, my, you know, that my nature might be to run um, when I'm in danger, but I can override that and make decisions about what I'm going to do in that situation. And of course, you know, I I just categorically deny and and uh, and reject the idea that men are an innately, uh, you know, that there's some kind of predator instinct to make them want to um, be violent against women. I just don't think there's proof of that, and I think it's nonsense. It's like treating uh, people like monkeys. But there, but whatever kind of you know instincts that we have that we either pick up from the environment or nature or nurture. We should be championing the fact that people have the confidence to use their rational capabilities to make decisions that sometimes break from the norm, which is why, you know, yes, the, the kind of explanation for sexism in the past was that women were less able for contemporary life because we were more fragile. But of course, we've said whether or not that is 
true, and I'm sure you could have a brilliant debate with biological determinists about that. I don't care. I'm going. I don't care. You're not going to get to close those doors for me on the basis of that. So it's pushing forward the idea of agency, which has been kind of sorely lost in the contemporary discussion. Emma, what do you think about this? Because uh, I wasn't suggesting that men are more likely by nature to be violent against women, but men are more likely to be violent than women. Well, it's a hormonal thing, isn't it? Testosterone. But what we never talk about when we talk about masculinity is virtue and character. So we'll talk about masculinity and toxic masculinity and about men's strength as if it's somehow inherently a danger, not just to women, but to everyone around them. Um, But we never talk about the way that that strength and masculinity and the sort of trappings of being biologically male uh, can be a good thing. The fact that, you know, my male friends often walk me at home or walk me to the station because probably they can better protect me. You pointed at me because I really can't fight. (laughs) And so people, you know, will often walk me home because, um, you know, they can use their strength to protect. Um, And that's a very traditional way of looking at things. Um, But I think you're right about the agency point. Um, I I, I do think, though, that it's, um, it's important not to talk about people as groups, full stop. So talking about you know, obviously you can make generalizations about groups of people, but if you're making unmitigated negative generalizations, not just about a group of people, but about something to do with them that, you know, that is completely immutable, like a man's masculinity, or um, as we saw with the Black Lives Matter um, protests about whiteness and trying to find whiteness in, in, in everything. Um, because I think when you think like this, you start seeing it everywhere. And the effects that that has, other than denying people agency, and actually in a strange way, almost denying criminals of their moral responsibility, because you say, well, you know, they did it because they they have this violence in them because they're male, which is just completely absurd when you think about it in that sense. Um, I think that, you know, that to, to deny people their agency, but at the same time, you know, I think that, seeing these things everywhere in society is bad for the people who are told that they're fragile, who are told that they are somehow, you know, weak in relation to that. So, um, yeah. Mm. But I mean, it's not, not to get all kind of Judith Butler about it, but there, <laughs> oh, there <no>. is, <laughs> please, <laughs> you know, there is, there is biological reality in terms of the physicality of our existence. Right. But then I do. I was to, uh, staying away from saying it explicitly. <laughs> but I do, you, to, you know, I am open to the conversations about the fact that gender is in many ways a construct to, to go to the, down the Judith Butler, right? But that, you know, they're, they're, the cousins is part of the interesting thing about us. And the women's role is different today than it was 20 years ago, than it was 120 years ago. And the same with men. I mean, we talk about the, the, you know, men have changed over the last sort of 30, 40 years drastically. I mean, my father's generation is completely different to my husband's generation now. You know, there will be some places, particularly among, you know, working class guys who've been doing, for example, the same jobs for years where the behavior is relatively the same and people still have those kind of very positive masculine, which actually, as it happens, women can adopt as well. I tend to go down the macho route too often, more often than I should. (laughs) But that, you know, Actually, men have changed. They've become more open to their feelings, which a lot of the time kind of makes me sick because there's a, you know, there's the whole uh, fetishization of 
being open with each other. And I tend to think people should shut up more than they do. But, the, <laughs> but we are, you know, we react to the world in which we live in. And if you really believe that we are hemmed in by the, by the trappings of our physical existence, then what's the hell of, what is the point of politics? What's the point of any belief in any kind of change? We are malleable, you know, uh, creatures. We can, we can outside of us and shape ourselves in the process. And so denying that flexibility by saying that men are innately and have always been the enemy and women are always the, you know, the damsel in distress, just, you know, give up, go home, don't ever engage in public life ever again because what's the point? I'm sorry, Francis. I would disagree with Ella, but she'll knock me out. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the fact that we've all just lost our minds over lockdown. So we've stopped being able to have a rationing conversation because we've all gone mad, and I include myself in that. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the atomization. <laughs> <laughs> the, the look she gave you was brilliant. Yeah. Without any comment on the state of your mental well-being. <laughs> I, think, I think that part of the trend of lockdown to be, you know, in, in a previous lifetime, before we ever talked about coronavirus, I'd be very critical of people that said that, you know, being online uh, all the time on your own affects you, that you become more of a kind of keyboard warrior, all that kind of thing. I'd say, oh, people are more intelligent than that. And I still think people are more intelligent than that, but we've had a mandated, a mandated isolation for a year now. And, you know, I've just waxed lyrical about what kind of malleable creatures human beings are. We're also social creatures. And when you end up being in isolation for too long, you lose perspective. It's, this, it's, you know, it's a similar thing that politicians who stay in London too long have no idea what the lives are like of people in Wakefield. It's the same thing if you're in your four walls for too long and you don't know what life is like for your neighbour. You don't, you don't have conversations with people. I mean, you know that I work with the Academy of Ideas and we do the Battle of Ideas Festival that was cancelled last year, but it is on this year, thank God. Um, and part of, the, part of the importance of public events like that, of actually rubbing shoulders with someone physically, with being in the same room with someone, is that you pick up on, on you intuit things. And, you know, especially in relation to personal relationships between the sexes, so much more happens in our understanding of each other b between the lines of what's not said. So I can say to you, you know, um, you know, a man came up to me yesterday and he, and he said to me, hello, beautiful. And you could think, oh, that's a lovely thing, you know, oh, and that could be a really wonderful experience and I could have really enjoyed that. Or if it, but if he was saying it to me that close to my face, then it would be a completely different context. It would be a completely different feeling. And if we aren't actually, <laughs> not to fetishize kind of physical interaction, but if we're not actually in, a, in the, uh, the public space, in the public sphere, interacting with each other, all of that nuance and context gets lost. And that's why you said, why are we kind of jumping to extremes of passing laws? It's because all of these politicians that are pushing for these laws are doing it on Zoom. They're not even like, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. so true. it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, can't, I can't remember where I'm stealing this from, but um, someone said that um, the, the, the thing that reigns in people with an authoritarian instinct is that they'll be sitting like a revolutionary in their, in their room and then they'll go downstairs and they'll speak to the shopkeeper and they'll have an exchange. And that simple interaction of negotiation where they realise that the shopkeeper isn't this horrible capitalist enemy but is just the, a nice neighbour that you you know interact with every day that that makes a big difference it, it actually I think that um, and like you said not to fetishize interaction but I think that actually seeing people in the flesh forces us into a nuance that we were already not inclined towards it was the like the last bastion 
of there was the last resource we had for giving us that nuance. And then as soon as we were shut inside, all of these ideas, these slightly authoritarian instincts that were bubbling away underneath the surface just immediately got their claws into everyone's brain. And so any opportunity then to actually get out of the house for the last year really has been protesting to go out with other people who are hyped up in exactly the same way that you are. And then to, as we saw like with the protests over the last couple of days, the Black Lives Matter guys came out. They were then joined by Extinction Rebellion with their bongo drums. You know, everybody wants to come out and sort of like join in with this kind of, um, it's a, it's the, the thrill of being in the crowd and the carnival atmosphere of it. And, and I think that if you don't have those day-to-day interactions with people that are different from yourself, either at work or if you're religious, you know, like at church or somewhere where you, you're able to come face-to-face with people that are not exactly like you, without that, you're just going to be naturally bent to an extreme extreme position. And I don't think there's, there's anything that can sort of like get us back on kilter. It's also been very interesting in the way it's exposed people's biases. Like you see people going... Black Lives Matter, fantastic. Anti-lockdown, disgusting. Women's vigil, brilliant. Do you see what I mean? And it it doesn't seem like people are consistent anymore. Well, I mean... <laughs> anymore. <laughs> it's true. In, I mean, in relation to the... I mean, there's been so much fuss, positive fuss, about Priti Patel's moves to criminalise protest, essentially, by, you know, saying that the basis of whether a protest can go ahead is if it makes, you know, a safe enough level of disruption, noise disruption. Um... I mean, there was there was shock and horror, I think rightly so, at the way in which women were treated by the police at the vigil, Sarah Everard's vigil um, on the weekend. Four people were arrested at Clapham Common that night. In January, 16 people were arrested in Clapham Common on an anti-lockdown protest. So abstractly, if, we've, if the thing we're horrified about is police with their, their kind of elbows and their knees on people's backs, arresting them on the basis of protests. It's been happening all year. See, uh, this is the thing where, where I disagree with you, and maybe this comes back to our little discussion about biological determinism, what do you call it? I don't think most people will ever be comfortable with the with with a picture of police officers, blokes kneeling on women's backs. It's just a look. Well, that... I just tell you that, that at an anti-lockdown, talk about coincidence, at an anti-lockdown protest, I don't know whether it was in January, but certainly previously in the year, there was a red-headed woman who looked Ooh. very much like Patsy Stevenson, um, who was punched, pushed to the ground by a police officer and very violently arrested. And it was... It yeah, was, but she had the wrong opinions, the papers, didn't she? But this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, you know, it was the... There have been... I've been on arrests about the student movement when I was one of those people that, you know, went out at a drop of a hat about you know, serious things like cuts at the time. Um you know, there was there were mass arrests, there were mass kettles, there was kind of, you know, and there was a sense in which people, especially at that time, students, you kind of wanted to be arrested. Mm. And there's this sort of there's this <laughs> spoiling for there's a this push and, push and pull, which is right. there is this, you know, that people seem to be there has been a chipping away at the right to protest for a very long time. Um, for various reasons and, you know, but from government, but also people giving in to the idea that you should have just a one-day strike with the nurses or trade unions rather than cause disruption. But that, that doesn't, you know, if we are outraged because the cause we like is the one that's being trampled on by the police officer, then you're doing it wrong because actually you need to support the right of far-right people to protest. You need to support the right of climate, you know, climate emergency protesters as annoying as I find them, of, of feminists of, you know, flat earthers, of whoever it is, because the, this is like the 
issue of freedom of speech, which you guys have covered so many times on this, um, on trigonometry, is that it she is. Know what to call it. Is a, I was going to say podcast, but I forget that we're being filmed. <laughs> on but this the, thing. <laughs> but it is an inalienable right that has no ifs and no buts that you have to either defend for everyone yeah. or you defend for no one. No, I agree. You were talking about the far right flat earthers. I'm like, oh, it's our audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, and Extinction Rebellion, so we just had the, the co founder on the show. But Emma, I, I wanted to ask you because you've done some great work on covering the protests that followed the vigils. Uh, I, I'm assuming you weren't at the vigils itself in Clapham. I wasn't at the first one, yeah, but I but, went to the protests. But you afterwards. went to the ones afterwards. And this is what I wanted. I mean, it's you, you've changed my mind on that point, actually, about the, the, the people not being comfortable with women. Maybe it was the way it was covered. Mm. Or maybe well, no, I think you're right on that, that it was you know particularly, I, yeah. yeah. Uh, but w what did you make of all of that and, and just how it happened, how people responded, then the protest, and you talk about other people coming along and jumping on board. Just yeah. give us your thoughts on that in the last five, ten minutes. Yeah, so I, I I, wonder actually, in relation to what you were saying about the footage of the women being nailed on, I think obviously that's right, quite shocking because of the like gender dynamic and also because of what happened to Sarah Everard. But I wonder whether that is partly to do with... We almost seem to be sort of obsessed with stories um, and telling ourselves stories at the moment. And that really played into what happened at the protest. So I noticed that at the vigil from the footage, obviously I said I wasn't there. Um, the, the footage of that and some of the photographs showed um, some people with ACAB, all cops are bastard, signs and defund the police signs. So they, they went to the vigil with their placards in hand. They already had them clearly when they got there. I'm guessing they didn't just sort of spontaneously And that count, by the way, them. sorry to interrupt, is an Antifa slogan, basically. It is, yeah. yeah. And um, there, there were also some suggestions that there were some people there in, in identif identifiably in black block, the Antifa black block. Um, and so now the police have come out and said that, uh, I think it was 26 officers were assaulted, including one female black officer who was racially abused. Um, so maybe that vigil, I initially came out condemning the police's aggression towards the women because I don't think that vigil should have been illegal in the first place. I'm totally in favour of the right to protest. So I don't think any heavy-handed um, interaction with protesters is ever a good thing. Um, but maybe there was more to what was going on there than necessarily was initially reported. And that really played out the next day because people mobilised like that. Um, as soon as I arrived, it was quite clear that it had no longer had anything to do with Sarah Everard. It was like the whole crowd was absolutely strewn with these ACAB, all cops are bastard signs. They were shouting no justice, no peace. The socialist worker were there. Um, the revolutionary communist group, big imperialism banners. It turned into a kind of like far left rally that was a bit like BLM with a bit of women's rights sprinkled into it. Um, and going back to my point about the stories, I think that to some degree, because of the, the natural resonance that that had for people with what happened with George Floyd, the footage of the woman being kneeled on by the police, the fact that the, the person at the centre of the investigation is also a cop, that it played into the stories that people were already obsessing about. And so the mobilisation of people coming out with those signs, I don't know whether those people, you know, were the same guys who came out to protest in the Black Lives Matter rally or not, but they had um, people who I presume were the organisers reading out um, an Asata Shakur poem, um, which the, the crowd was then repeating back to them. And Asata Shakur was from the Black Liberation Army. She's... 
uh, on the FBI's most wanted list for being convicted for killing a cop and went on the run to Cuba. Um, and so I don't think the crowd necessarily realized that they were basically echoing the words back. Maybe even the police didn't realize it. So it was quite clear that um, the protest had been hijacked by at least far left ideas, whether or not the entire crowd had turned up for that particular reason, I don't know. Um, and then obviously in the subsequent days, you had like the Extinction Rebellion guys turned up and sister, uh, Sisters Uncut, which is a whole other story. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have much of a problem with far left rallies. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I don't either. When you said uh, Revolutionary Communist Party, I was, hmm? <laughs> the, I mean, the thing, it's funny, you know, the thing about these, as you're describing the protest, well, I went to the one on Sunday with my uh, with my sign about freedom of protest because the, uh, as the days have gone on, it's become more about the, about they're using the slogan, kill the bill, not the police, as some people on Twitter <laughs> have suggested, yeah. Yeah. but the anti-protest um, bill. Um, but it is like it's like a kind of everything but the kitchen sink type protest. So there was there was um, uh, speeches from people about uh, the nurses' strike, which is you know, let's talk about it. But at a protest about Sarah Everard, maybe not. There was um, one speaker talked about women, Muslim women's access to resources. Again, you know the relation to Sarah Everard is very tenuous. Tenuous there. There were Labour MPs getting up and grandstanding about getting Cressida Dick resigned. I mean, it's just. It was everything. It was, and there were people holding placards saying, "We are intersectional, or we are nothing." And you're like, "Well, this is a protest about women." Anyway, the whole thing was, it was confused. But I think, and you know, in particular, you mentioned the SWP. Um, I mean, the SWP when I was at university were were broken apart by a rape scandal because one of the the head guys in the SWP raped a woman, and they they all they dealt with it in the kangaroo court within the party, and that's why masses of people, including my husband, left the SWP in the um, in this sort of uh, around 2014. So when I saw their placards at this particular protest, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Why are the SWP here? Well, there is a bit of an iron rule with but, these things. The guys who bang on about women's rights usually have something. Well, well it was the same that, but... with, the, with the sisters uncut. They yeah. had a a list of people that they said that they'd like which were remembering or paying homage to in some way and in that list were people that had transitioned from male into being female but before they had transitioned they had raped and murdered women uh, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a the it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Sorry, what was I, 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 I have been critical of Sisters Uncut in the past, but one thing they did well at the protest that I was at was that um, Zara Sultana, the Labour MP, made a massive grandstanding speech about, you know, Cress the Dick and how evil she was and this, that and the other. And then Sisters Uncut got on the megaphone and said, this is not an opportunity for Labour grandstanding, this is our protest, this is not Labour's. And I was like, yes, because obviously <laughs> Labour had abstained on the police bill up until now. And so the whole... You know, there's so much hypocrisy going on. There's so much opportunism going on. But the main question is, what are these protests trying to achieve? And and you have to look at the, the in the same breath they say the streets should be free for women, and and they also then say, but we need to educate, educate and legislate, educate boys and decriminalize and criminalize uh, misogyny and bring in new laws. So there is this is the central dichotomy of everything we've been talking about today is that there is a toss up between women's safety and women's freedom. And the contemporary feminist movement has gone down the route of women's safety, which means protection, which means restriction, which means denying all risk. And what we've lost is the real F word, not feminism, uh, which is what I talk about in my book. 
But freedom, which is freedom to, as Camille Pallia says, and I quote it every time I talk about this and will do every time in the future, the freedom to risk rape, the freedom to risk danger, the freedom to do all the things that men do with the, uh, the kind of potential and the understanding as an adult that those things might come with, the, with harm in the future for you. But that being free with all its costs and all its consequences is always going to be preferable to being cosseted, to being safe. And the fact that so many women, so many prominent professional you know, women today can't see that and instead buy into this incredibly craven, um, whinging, middle-class crap that I think contemporary feminism is, um, that gets me so irate, is depressing. And I think there are many, 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 many more women out there who are watching this thinking, what in the hell are they going on about? Mm. Amen and a women. A, a women. <laughs> well done, mate. <laughs> yes, a women indeed. Oh, well, guys, we've run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure this issue will is something we'll, we'll continue talking about. But in the meantime, we've got one more question for you. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society, but we really should be? We'll start with you, Ella. My bugbear at the moment is... Uh, LTNs, which you think might think are a very specific um, local low, issue. Low traffic low neighborhoods. neighborhoods. Yeah. Mainly because my life in Hackney has been made a misery because of, uh, and I love driving around in my little white van and shocking people, particularly if I'm wearing lipstick in the van. Um, but I can't do that anymore because of LTNs. But actually the reason why it's interesting, people should talk about it, not just because it's being rolled out across the country, because the central question of low traffic neighborhoods is, what we've been sort of talking about this evening is who gets to decide on political decisions. Do, is, the, is the climate emergency, as people call it, reason enough to make people's ordinary working class often people's lives of misery in their own neighbourhoods? Who gets to decide who owns our streets? Is it the councillors who don't give really a fig about, about local residents or is it the residents themselves? So, um, you know, if you're interested in democracy, if you're interested in environmentalism and all that kind of thing, look up low traffic neighbourhoods and look up right where they're happening. It's not just in Highbury and Hackney, it's across the country and it's really pissing me off. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, if you will permit me to be very predictable, <laughs> um, I think... Uh, the thing that people are talking about it, but not as much as they should be, is NCHIs, non-crime hate incidents. Um, so recently, Harry Miller is obviously going through the Court of Appeal at the moment, um, trying to get non-crime hate incidents removed from the guidance of the College of Policing. And so really, I think the thing that we should all be talking about is these unaccountable quangos who seem to be making a kind of um, parallel law for us all, um, particularly in relation to free speech. So the um, College of Policing created these NCHIs wasn't something that was passed as a law through Parliament. And so I think that is the thing that we should all be talking about because there are unaccountable quangos that are surpassing the uh, proper parliamentary scrutiny and the legal system as it should be and they have no democratic accountability so that's what we should all be talking about there's quite a bit of that going all around <laughs> isn't there parliamentary scrutiny and all the rest of it uh, ella whelan emma webb thank you so much for coming on and thank you for watching at home we will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or a live stream and they all go out at 7 p.m uk time take care guys and see you soon Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.